G'day everyone, how's it going? Uh, another episode of Lubrication Experts. Today, my name's Rafe, uh, and today I have Trevor Gauntlet returning. So my first returning guest, very exciting, uh, back due to popular demand. So um, what I wanted to do today is discuss um, a pretty widely used base oil technology that uh, maybe people aren't as familiar with. So it's the uh, gas to liquid uh, base oils, which are used pretty widely in the industry now, um, predominantly manufactured by Shell, but available in products, um, you know, across different brands as we might get into a little bit later. Um, now, Trevor has um, a background. He, he spent most of his career at Shell, but I'll help, um, sorry, I'll ask uh, Trevor to um, explain his actual um, kind of understanding of this technology. So Trevor, if you could uh, please take us away. <laughs> Right. First thing is, I never worked in GTL when I was in Shell. Um, I am not going to give you any commercial secrets on this. <laughs> I can absolutely guarantee that because I know nothing from within the company. However, way back, way back, way back in the 1980s, I did my PhD on Fischer-Tropsch chemistry, which is fundamental to the production of GTL. And, uh, so I, I maintained an interest. Um, might seem very geeky. Um, but even though I moved on to other stuff, including the chemistry behind metallocene PAOs, and this was way before I even joined the lubricants industry, um, you know, I've maintained an interest in sort of like the chemistry that was, that was pre prevalent in those kind of things. So, um, yeah, I can give insights based on general stuff without any risk of ever having given away a shell trade secret there. Awesome. Yeah, you say you say extremely geeky. Well, extremely geeky is what we do here, almost exclusively. So um, you're in yeah. you're in very good company. Um, maybe just to just to start out, um, if we could maybe start with a bit of a history of kind of the GTL process. Um, I use GTL in a very loose way. I, you know, it's kind of an umbrella term. But would you be able to give a bit of a history on? going back to who discovered the process and, you know, maybe the way it was commercialized? Yeah, yeah. So um, it started with fundamental studies on um, getting liquids away from uh, out of coal. Um, so in the 1920s, it depends on which references you read, whether it was 1923, 24, 25, or 26. Um, a couple of guys called Fischer and Tropsch uh, in Germany um, discovered and patented uh, a process for the conversion of um, coal to um, hydrocarbon products. And they started with carbon monoxide and hydrogen, which you get by, well, which you can get by many, many means. So, you know, in the gas to liquids going through to um, base oils approach, um, you start with methane. So CH4, but you can start with biomass. Um, and, and of course, you can start with coal. And if you burn them in a, a slight absence of oxygen, you get carbon monoxide and hydrogen, which you then put into the Fischer-Tropsch process. And depending on the process conditions, you can get out um, fuels. And quite a few com companies have done that. Um, and if you run the process under slightly different conditions, you can get longer hydrocarbons. So you can get base oil length hydrocarbons. Um, and if you adjust the, the conditions again, you can get oxygenates, usually alcohols, 
um, out of the process as well, because you start with carbon monoxide, you've got a, a carbon to oxygen bond, uh, you can break it completely or you can incorporate it into, into your chemistry. So that was the 1920s. Um, in the 1930s, um, Germany preparing its war effort, one of the things that it, it realized was that it didn't have access to a great deal of, of crude oil. Um, so there was a lot of um, manufacture in Germany in the 1930s and early 40s. Um, South Africa facing economic sanctions um, due to apartheid um, developed in from the 1950s onwards. So you've got um, Sassol, especially, was a, a major player in it. Um, uh, and a company that's now called Petro, uh, Petro SA, so the South African National uh, Oil Company. Um, and so when I came into the whole thing in the late 70s, early 80s, um we were then on to a third thing which was um sort of reactions to the the oil crisis that came out of the arab israeli war in the 1970s and that i think is where shell came into to the whole thing and um so you've got these different trains um which were all about the conversion of something into liquid hydrogen hydrocarbons and mainly for fuels um shell in the 80s 90s um they introduced the shell middle distillate synthesis process so smds um and, and interesting enough they always used to get people in, in within shell who wanted to talk about an msds so a material safety data sheet they would refer to it as an smds <laughs> um and um they first of all they took that on um it was on petroleum slack waxes um so straight out of solvent extraction producing group one base oils um and they started on the process of um doing hydroisomerizations on slack waxes and that was in um, bintulu in malaysia um and that then changed over to fisher tropsch waxes sometime in the 1990s and all of that effort then led into the business case for Pearl GTL in Qatar, which opened in 2011. And I think out of all the Fischer-Tropsch um, processes that are, that are ongoing, which start with, say, methane and take um, it through to liquids, then the Pearl um, plant in Qatar is the only one that actually goes all the way through the base oils. Um, there's another couple of plants, at least in Qatar, in which Sassol, so we get back to um, that company, uh, is a joint venture partner, um, but they produce synthetic fuels and, and synthetic diesel. Um, it's, a, it's a very clean burn um, material if it's produced um, by Fisher Trops because it's a very um well-defined molecular distribution as far as the fuel is concerned um, and the same is true for for the lubricants grades so is that good enough for history yeah that's that's uh that's a really good history i, I find it fascinating when uh you get that sort of intersection of technology but also geopolitical pressure right so some of oh, the yeah. some of the changes that you just just described were let's say for example like germany pre pre-war you know without access to 
you know, fuel resources are having to look to create their own. South Africa during the apartheid regime, you know, unable to import anything. So again, having to look to technology to solve that problem. Um, I find that interesting that that people have been using this technology as a bit of a a, a workaround for their their own country's uh, let's say limitations at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that uh, you know just just the way that that spurs, uh, I guess, innovation. Um, but before we we get into the maybe the production of uh, lubricant base oil specifically, I just wanted to, to yeah. back up a little bit because. Like we said from the outset, GTL is kind of this umbrella term that encompasses a whole bunch of different technologies, which some of some of them you described as, um, uh, let's say, for example, producing uh, synthetic synthetic diesel. Um, yeah. Are there what, what are some of the other common products that we would make out of a you know gas to liquid process as well? Okay. Um, gas to liquids is an umbrella that goes way beyond. Um, taking methane out the ground and producing hydrocarbons. So there's two things. First of all, gas to liquids, and then we'll talk about Fischer-Tropsch, which is one of three steps in the production of, of um, a GTL base oil. Uh, so gas to liquids can include things like um, the conversion of methane, a gas, to methanol. Um, and, and you've got a background with mobile. Um, well, I think it was probably in the 1980s, um, Mobile produced a, a process with the, their amazing zeolite called ZSM5, um, uh, which in my catalyst days was like the, the gold um, <coughs> standard of everything to do with petrochemical processing. Um, and um, that's a simple conversion of methane to methanol. So in terms of the chemistry, you take CH4 and you add a single oxygen in there and you get CH3 and then the alcohol group OH. Um, you also get processes and these are now coming into um, the production of su sustainable aviation fuel, which might not even be petrochemical or chemical, but they are could be biochemical. Um, and the conversion of, um, say, carbon dioxide um, which can be just harvested from, from the air into ethanol. And this is a step. Um, there's a few companies in there, but the one that sort of sticks in my mind is, is a, a, a company that was founded in New Zealand called Lanzatech. I think they're now an American company. Um, and they take carbon dioxide and convert that to ethanol. And then that ethanol, so that's two carbons together now, um, is then converted um, into um, aviation kerosene. Um, so you're up with a, a carbon number of 12, 15, 18 or so. Um, and, and they've even got, they've got processes that are now approved um, for 50-50 mixing of the, the aviation kerosene at the, at the end of that into commercial um, jet, if you're in the States, or jet A1 fuel for um, most of the rest of the world. Um, and again, that's a gas to liquids process. And that one even ends up with a hydrocarbon, um, but it's not Fischer-Tropsch. Uh, there are also competing Fischer-Tropsch chemistries um, to produce aviation kerosene. Um, again, synthetic aviation kerosene, and because it starts with some kind of waste, carbon monoxide or something that is burned to produce carbon monoxide, um, then gives the sustainability element to it yeah. um, and so 
Fischer-Tropsch chemistry, which starts with carbon monoxide and hydrogen. Um, as I've said, you've got still companies in South Africa making um, mainly synthetic diesel, um, but you can use it to make aviation kerosene. Um, it, and also in Qatar, um, certainly um, I've mentioned the Sasol joint ventures there already. Um, it can be used to make alcohols, um, and, and that comes down to possibly some of the limitations over uh, why can't you make certain grades uh, for, for lubricants applications. Um, and so Fischer-Tropic chemistry, as I say, starts with carbon monoxide and hydrogen, and it winds up making you, as far as we are concerned, um, nice hydrocarbons at the end of it, um, which we can use as very nice base oil. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it's it's so interesting, and and I guess the reason I wanted to back up and just briefly talk about yeah. um, a range of technologies is obviously everyone's sort of taking the sustainability angle at the moment, and uh, some of the, the yeah. products that you've just described, whether it's uh, synthetic aviation fuel, um, as an example, you know there is no, um, you know, foreseeable replacement for jet fuel on the horizon. I know people are talking about hydrogen in kind of the distant future, so that could become a really important technology. And, and you also mentioned the pr production of methanol from methane as well. And we've seen a lot of announcements, you know, especially over the last 12 months of all the, the marine companies wanting to get into yeah. the methanol combustion or the ammonia combustion game. So again, yeah. we're going to have to find renewable, sustainable ways of producing those too. So um, yeah. just wanted to kind of back up there a little bit. So if we go back to um, you know, what, what's really the core discussion today, which is, producing lubricant base oils um, through yeah. uh, the GTL, specifically fischer trucks process, you know, uh, yeah. which is, again, primarily the domain of the Pearl GTL plant. Um, would you be able to just, <laughs> I know you have a, the, the PhD in this one, but for yeah. us uh, <laughs> for us casuals, as, as you might call them, yeah. would you be able to break down the, the process for us? Yeah, and there's three steps to the process. Number one is that you take the, the, the methane and you react it with oxygen. And, and this is this is one of the, the significant things, right? There's a lot of stuff being thrown at its shell about this. This is an incredibly energy intensive process. Um, so your methane comes out of the ground and if you're gonna purify it, you've got to liquefy it. So you've got to cool it down a lot takes a lot of energy um you react it you could do it make it react with air but then you've got nitrogen around you've got high temperatures you start to produce nox hey we're into typical lubricant combustion conditions what you're going to do with so you liquefy your oxygen as well so that also involves a lot of energy to cool stuff down which then goes into a reactor that gets hot um, so there's a lot of energy management there, but your carbon monoxide, uh, so your methane is combusted to produce carbon monoxide and hydrogen. Now, the nice thing about methane combustion is that you've got just then the, the right amounts of carbon monoxide and hydrogen to then go into stage two. So having broken everything up, you then put it back together. And that's stage two. And stage two, essentially, as, as far as we are concerned, produces um, hydrocarbon waxes and very, very nice ones as well because they are highly linear. Um, 
Now, of course, the smaller molecules, they float off or get distilled off and they become fuel. Um, you also get an awful lot of um, propane, ethane, etc. you know, good stuff for um, uh, further chemical processes. Um, and if you tweak the process, you can even make them into olefins, which are even better from the point of view of um, uh, going on to petrochemical processes. So they all get siphoned off and we're left with our wax. Um, now, wax isn't a great lubricant. So you then go through, again, another industry standard process now, anyway, um, some kind of hydroisomerization process. Now, of course, there's a whole set of proprietary trade names around the process. Um, and I may inadvertently use one of those names <laughs> and that will be a complete accident um, because this, the shell process, um, I, I think, is, is, is their own. Um, but basically, you take a linear molecule, um, which is a bit like a snake, um, and you give it a couple of legs by moving some stuff around on it. Um, and so you'll wind up giving a couple of side chains. And this then means that your substance, which was a wax because you could get all your individual um, molecules would just lie down together and become solid at relatively high temperatures. Um, they have little stubby bits off the, the sides. So it's a bit like a, a snake, but it's got a few legs. Um, they don't come together as a, as a solid um, so easily. So your core point drops or your low temperature properties improve, they continue to flow. Um, and that's absolutely critical. And, and it's you know, something that's, that's true of all group threes anyway, that you've got some kind of hydro finishing process. I really don't like the word hydro cracking because as a chemist, cracking means breaking things up and you're not doing that, you're rearranging it. So hydro isomerization, which is the proper, isomerization is a proper chemical word for taking a molecule and rearranging it, but still leaving it with the same chemical formula. Um, is, is much more important. And, and that's hydroisomerization or that final finishing step, the isomerization process, is what then gives you the GTL um, fluid, the group three cross super high viscosity index type properties um, that I'm sure you're going to want to ask questions about now. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of leads nicely into the next question I was going to ask, which was really around performance properties. So we've already yeah. we've already touched a little bit on how um, by going from a from a straight carbon chain to something that's a bit more branched, you're obviously in, improving the pore point. Um, yeah, and so it doesn't form what are effectively solid particles, right? When when we get down to cold temperatures, um, yeah. but what are the, what are the kind of basic performance properties that you expect out of a, out of a GTL? Um, well, it's, 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 a to, to use the, the marketing term, it's a group three plus, um, yeah. because you've got viscosity indices now up above 140. Um, the low temperature properties, uh, are, are excellent. Um, not quite PAO. Um, but I, I do remember the, 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 the time within um, in, in my shell days. I mean, there's not going to be any kind of secret on this one. Um, so, like the, the celebrations when the plant in Qatar was able to produce um, 
product that meant that zero Ws could be blended um, reliably and, and that they weren't completely trashing the yield because you've always got this balance in a, in a chemical plant between improved performance and reduced yield. Um, and you know, they, they, they managed to find a set of process conditions, which then meant, yeah, you know, we, we can get the VI up, the log temperature properties down, such that, um, you know, we, we can make a zero W um, without resorting to any kind of PAO trim. And that was relatively early on in the process, but certainly when the process started, um, you know, the VIs that, that were coming out weren't capable of, of, of that. And so if you were going to produce, well, I mean, the, obviously the challenges that came after Pearl were around sort of 0 W16, 0 W8, 0 W12. Um, you know, the, those those kinds of fluids couldn't have been made from the original Pearl material. Um, so um, you, you've now got excellent low temperature properties and the far as the crankcase is concerned, then um certainly you know you can do these zero wx um formulations very well um some pao, PAO people will say well you know a gtl doesn't quite have the same kind of, of, of performance as, as a pao in say slow cool applications um so maybe wind turbine lubricants and, and, and transmissions um there's still a little bit there um but they're, they're going to outperform the vast majority of um, group threes that come out of petrochemical refining. Um, yeah, that, that's just there on the spec sheet. You can see, you can see it. Yeah. Mainly, you just have to look at VI. Um, but then you look at pore points as well, and you know they're, they're generally you know, lower than the vast majority of group three products. Yeah. So you, you talked a little bit about sort of like that, um, the yield, not, not problem, but the, the yield trade-off, right, in a lot of yeah. these chemical processes, right, where um, you can maybe sharpen the pencil on the process, but the yield goes down. Um, yeah. I'm assuming that that's also true of the group threes, right? So, you, you, you know, if you were to hydro-treat them, to a more significant degree, you can improve the quality of that group three. Um, is the reason that GTL is so successful is just that it can hit that yield at a better price point, and oh, sorry, hit that yield and those properties at a better price point than a very, very, very highly refined group three? Or are there physical limitations around how much you can actually refine a mineral base oil and it will you know, no matter how much you try, it'll never get to, uh, you know, GTL quality. I think it's it's more of the former. Okay. Um, I don't think there's, there's there's physical limitations because you know you can take a petroleum wax, and it can wind up being compositionally pretty well the same as a Fisher Tropsch wax. Mm. There are some advantages in the Fisher Trops rock because they are so linear. But yeah, you, you could really screw your yield and, and take your petroleum waxes and, and get them to the point where you've got you know 99.9% .9 of super linear molecules um, all of about the same length. It's just a lot easier to do by the Fisher Trops process. Okay. Um, 
So I, the, there is a, a little bit about, so I'm going to correct myself there. <laughs> so there's, there's certainly a little bit about a Fisher Tropsch wax is, is, is a more reliable, a, a more reproducible material than say a, a, a petroleum wax overall. Okay. Um, I, I can hear the sort of the calls from the group three producers saying, "No, no, no, you're misrepresenting the here already." Um, so yeah, uh, and then you know the, the key thing was that you know the, the you know the, these sort of cracking of bottles of um, champagne and things like that was that the shell guys found a, a set of process conditions um, that meant that you know any any hydrogen process that involves a hydrocarbon you've got two competing reactions you've got probably what you want to do and you've got chopping it up um and you really don't want to chop things up because generally the smaller the molecule the less the value um and and so you know you, you your hydro isomerization process you've got a competing side reaction there, which is the actual cracking process where the hydrogen breaks a carbon-carbon bond forever. Mm. Now, in isomerization, you're moving carbon-carbon bonds within the, the molecule, um, but that can be really quite difficult, and so some bits fall off. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of process and chemical engineering that goes into uh, the, the, that, that kind of process and the technology. Uh, and it's very, very, you know, it's a very important part of it. So I think I've, I've diverted myself away from your question a little bit. No. Um, but there's, it's certainly, I think, the, the fisher Trops wax is, is, is a very, very good starting material. Um, and then... Yeah, somebody may find a way of optimizing their, their processes with petroleum waxes to be able to um, to get to the, the point of producing as good a product, but it will be a very expensive product. And I think that's where we come down to the whole thing about what's the market prepared to pay for. Um, you know, and Shell's got this world-scale plant producing, you know, this kind of quality. Um, it, it's going to be difficult for for other people to to come in at the moment from what you can see that's in the market and uh, with a with a similar product at comparable price yeah yep um so something you touched on there was um the idea of in the engine oil space of like the zero w grades um the you know i've obviously come from a bit more of an industrial background um where yeah. You know, our understanding is that GTL is used in, in many products, but it seems like it's confined mostly to some of the lower viscosity grades, um, or, or at least that's that's my perception. So you, you'll need to correct me yeah. if, that's not, if that's not true. Um, so, but if that is true and it's only available in sort of the, those lower viscosity grades, what's the limitation there? Is that you know, can't we just allow the reaction to continue and make larger and larger molecules to get ourselves to to something heavier? Um, what's what's the limitation around that? Um, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, you, you get into the whole thing about competing reactions in your your reactor. Yes, you you can in principle just let the reaction go along, and because um, you know, you, you, in in the the classic catalyst image, which I'll 
um, I've got on page, I don't know what it is of my PhD thesis. You know, you, you, <laughs> you've got all these little carbons sitting on the surface. Da, 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 da. And they also suddenly decide to join up. Yeah, and become a carbon chain, which then floats away from the surface. And hey, though, isn't it? All very simple. Um, and yeah, you, you know, you can do that. But there's, there's a couple of things that, that potentially are, are going to get in the way. Number one, you don't stop at C60 or 65 or whatever you need for a nice, heavy, great, you know, the, the lubricant that's going to be, say, an ISO 320 or something like that. Um, it actually goes on and on and on, and you get coking on your catalyst. So that's one of the other things. And then the other thing is that in the process, um, the, the received wisdom in the literature is that you know you go to a higher pressure to try and produce larger molecules. But at higher pressures, the Fischer-Tropsch process itself takes a slightly different route. And you then start the, you don't favor the production of aldehols, but you start to produce more of them anyway. And then you've got a separation problem. Um, so that's all chemical literature, right? So no shell insight in that at all. In fact, I'll probably get told that I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> but you know, if, if you go back and you have a look, you, you will find productions by uh, in publications um, by Shell where they were, you know, in the early noughties, um, finessing the idea of um, higher viscosity um, products. Um, uh, so, again, you know, my interpretation of this is, is that you know, it's just not worth it. Um, you, you just don't produce enough good quality material quickly. And of course, you've also got this issue that you're trying to run a continuous process. Um, you know, once you've got it in its sweet spot, you want to run it there all the time. So it's not like a batch process where, yeah, you'll produce a, an ISO 320, you know, this, this, this week and, and, and next week you're producing, you know, an ISO 32 or something like that. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of waste that would go into that kind of switching. So if they were going to produce a lot of material uh, or if they were going to produce a heavy grade consistently, they'd have to have a, an assurance that there was going to be a market for it. And they just didn't, probably, there just didn't appear to be that kind of market. But you've got thousands and thousands of tons of four centistoke and five centistoke material that you can, um, you've got a, a ready market for. Yeah, but if you're also tweak your process and you're producing 10% of that that's suitable for you know, an ISO 320 or a 460 or something like that, gear oil, there's just not the market for that group three quality, um, you know, the, those volumes. So, you know, the, almost certainly the, the, the economic decision was taken. It's not worth running our process where we're producing all this heavy base oil because we don't think we can sell it. Mm. So. Yeah. So the the, op, the optimize around you know, the, the the four and the five because that's that's where they've got a market. Yeah, yep. That 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 certainly makes sense. And and the again the outsider's impression that I get is that um, the the GTL market is in some ways almost like oversubscribed. You know, Shell could produce more, and they would just sell more. 
Uh, that's the impression that I get anyway. Um, and so, you know, if you're in that position, um, then there is no incentive, I guess, to go to a higher viscosity grade. Uh, like you said, if, if the market's not necessarily there and if that higher viscosity grade is already um, filled by the likes of the, the heavier PAOs as well. Um, yeah, and I think that, that's, it, that's important because, of course, at the time that Shell was making all of these investment decisions as well, Metallocene PAO arrived. And you weren't suddenly in the passenger car motor oil market in particular, you were basically putting in a product just below PAO. And, and over the years, sort of tweaking it up and getting it right up. But of course, you were coming in at tier two. In the industrial envelope, the GTL product would have been coming in, once metallocene PAO arrived, would have been coming in at tier three. And then you've got the issue about, you know, how are you going to exploit that? Where's your margin going to be? Um, so it's a good prompt there because it, I hadn't, don't think I articulated that one very well at all. But I think the you know the arrival of metallocene PAO um, in the heavier grades in the industrial area would also have been a significant disincentive um, for for Shell and any other GTL player. But you know, maybe we'll come on to why is Shell is Shell the only one yeah. in in a, in, a, in a short while. Anyone who was trying to make heavy group threes you just didn't have it because you were only ever going to come in at, at, at you know the third tier of, of fluids. So where was your margin going to come from when you're not even as good as you know the the the, the original PAOs and suddenly there's something on top of that, you know, in, in the metallocenes. Yeah. Yeah. Well and to be honest, that was actually the, the next question I was going to ask you was around <laughs> was around, you know, the, it seems like such a a, a good and robust technology. Um, and, you know, in an era where uh, gas is reasonably plentiful, may not feel like it right at this very moment <laughs> with, mm -hmm. with the context of Russia and Ukraine, but but on, on a 10 year timescale, gas was reasonably plentiful. And of course, Qatar being, you know, either the first or the second largest gas producer or LNG producer, at least in the world, makes sense yeah. to have Pearl GTL there. Um, so in that context, it is almost surprising to me that Shell is the only one who does seem to be pursuing not just not GTL, because as you have already mentioned, there are other companies doing GTLs in the likes of synthetic fuels and that, but specifically lubricant base stocks from the GTL process. It seems that Shell basically has this market to themselves. So, um, yeah, why is that? <laughs> why is there only really one player? Whereas, for example, in, you know, when you talked about metallocene PAOs, um, there are not many players, but there are, there are more than one. Um, so, so what is it about GTL that makes it unique? Um, geopolitics and finance, probably. Because um, you've got to remember when all the final investment decisions were being made. Um, they were being made towards the end of the noughties. Um, so the financial crash came along. Um, now, the quoted numbers, I mean, in Qatar, there was going to be at least a, a Chevron plant 
and Sasso were looking at it. I can't remember. I mean, there's two Chevron Sasso joint ventures in, in Qatar that produce fuels. Um, and I'm sure ExxonMobil's name was, was, was mentioned there as well. And the, 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 there's a whole host of um, Chinese coal to liquids type activities as well. But they, they are, I think some of them are now going. But certainly if you look back into the noughties, um, companies were coming to make their fine investment decisions just at the time of the financial crash. And the quoted numbers for the Sassol plant were 13 to 15, so 1.3 to 1.5 billion US dollars in terms of capital expenditure. Um, and I don't think the numbers for Chevron and for ExxonMobil were much different. Um, so certainly that was, was a, a significant issue. And then, of course, the other thing was that um, in, in that period, again, in the late noughties, um, the US um, suddenly discovered shale. Um, and I think a, a lot of money then sort of, if you like, got reshored back to, to North America, given that we're talking about a lot of North American corporations here. And was invested in shale, um, and therefore the production of, of ethylene, and then onto linear alpha olefins and PAOs. At least as far as the lubricant space is concerned, obviously there's a lot more than just that. Um, but shale gas, tight gas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, we tend to just say shale. It's not all shale gas. But suddenly, you know, the, the U.S. found itself with enormous amounts of, of, of hydrocarbons, and the ability to realise those. Um, and so competing expenditure um, priorities at the time of, of tight cash meant that, you know, that, that, that the other companies blinked, decided to go and spend their money elsewhere, however you want to say it. But you know, that was basically part of, parts of the reason why Shell then just wound up being by itself in this market. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And Maybe just a follow-up question to that then, because obviously there is the, if anyone wanted to enter the market now, there is the huge upfront capex that would be required. Um, And I don't know that anyone really has the appetite for that kind of investment now. Um, And on top of that, you've already mentioned that Shell has been sharpening the pencil on the process to refine it and to optimize it. So do you think, you know, realistically, anyone could enter the market at this point because they'd be, they'd be, you know, at this point, they're at least what 10, 15 years behind on the on the technology. Um, well, I've, I've mentioned that there's there's coal to liquids um, uh, in China. I'm being a, a little mental block about the names of the companies that that, that we mentioned to do that, but uh, again, the the thing about coal to liquids, if you go right back to the start, and I was talking about the, the chemical processes, burning methane produces the right amount of carbon monoxide and hydrogen for a fissure tropic process. Burning coal doesn't, because coal is much more carbon than hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have an external source of hydrogen. Now, okay, potentially, of course, you could have green hydrogen, but hey, green hydrogen is going to solve everything in the world. Um, you know, we've only got to produce about a billion times more than we do at the moment so uh, um but we're not going to that at the moment um 
so there are certainly those kinds of processes. And as I mentioned before, then, um, you know, Fisher Trops is, 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 is being used in sustainable aviation fuel. And where it's being used in sustainable aviation fuel at the moment is, is in things like taking municipal solid waste, burning it, and then converting the combustion gases into something useful. Now, it's not necessarily the best way of processing municipal solid waste. The ideal way would be to separate it and then take out your individual plastics and try to reuse them rather than burning them and starting again. But it's certainly a good way forward. Now, with that kind of market, which is only going to grow, it's going to get away from the niche of sustainable aviation fuel and move into things that are more broad and you're going to be producing more and different hydrocarbons basically by processing the combustion products from waste. Um, and, and that all do several things. It addresses potentially things like single-use plastics. Um, it addresses sending stuff to landfill. Like in, you know, in the UK, we send a lot of stuff that doesn't go into landfill in our own country. It gets shipped abroad. Um, which is not very good for your ESG, so your environmental, social, and um, governance credentials. Um, and so, you know, assuming that we do actually get out of COVID um, and we don't have a third world war, then these things are, are going to be, um, you know, relevant. You know, they were relevant pre-COVID. Their relevance is only being enhanced with, with COVID. But whether anybody will actually get to producing something that's base oils, um, is, is a really difficult thing. And, and I would tend towards the no. Um, the processes are there to produce hydrocarbons. At least when you produce hydrocarbons that you can combust, then you're reducing your CO2 footprint by 50%. Well, let's say 30 40% because you've got the amount of energy that's been involved in processing the municipal solid waste to get to, to kerosene or, or gasoline or, or whatever it may be. Um, but that's what the aviation industry is saying. Look, we, you know, we can go through this process and we can get roughly a 50% reduction in our carbon intensity um, simply by having these sustainable aviation fuels because they were carbon dioxide once they were converted by plants into something we used it but then we didn't just put it back into carbon dioxide we took whatever that was and turned it back into kerosene um so i think that gtl fisher trops is only going to going to be fuels related and there's not going to be a lot of, of additional movement into you know that that space um, and, and one of the other things is you've got all the technologies that, that are coming that, that may get into that space anyway. So, um, you know, Novi first came along with, with their, um, uh, their sugar cellulose um, based process. And they started, you know, oh, we're going to make something PAO-like. Um, it's come back to, to group three. Um, and they're using... Um, Chevron's, uh, Chevron Lumus Global's um, hydro 
processing because I, I can't remember the the, the trade name um, as, as their finishing step. So you're going to get high quality group threes that come from different directions, um, and and maybe you know that that kind of of novi type approach is is, is going to get there, or maybe. You know, Neste, you know, they, they've got a process that produces, um, uh, it's called My Renewable Diesel or MY Renewable Diesel. In theory, that could also be extended out towards um, renewable Group 3, Group 3 plus type base stocks. So whether the gas to liquids would, would ever come against, you know, that kind of competition, where you might wind up with bio-derived products in the same um, performance space, I think is 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 questionable. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Trevor, that seems like a, a really good place to end it. Um, just okay. for a discussion on the on the future of the technology. It feels like the discussion that we had today almost had like two different through lines. One of which was, you know, the the technology as it relates to lubricant base stocks, but also the technology as it relates to kind of broader. Um, fuels and and liquids and its potential applications in in sustainable liquids as well. Um, so I think yeah. those two parallel discussions were uh, are really really interesting, and I think the uh, the audience will get a lot from that. So um, really appreciate your insight, Trevor. Thanks for um, agreeing to return, <laughs> um, and I'll have to get you back for for round three. Oh well, we'll have to decide on the subject there. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah. All right.